No, no. You ever seen that film, Trains and Boats and Planes? Yeah, yeah. There were two guys that were trying to get home. They're, they're not together at the start, but it's terrible weather, isn't it? And it just takes them forever. Well, it's been like that this morning. I've, I've got on seven modes of transport to get here this morning. And uh, well, I left at seven o'clock. And um, I was just two stops before... Uh, Shepherd's Bush and I thought well I'm nearly home and dry now I'd already uh, contacted Indra and said come pick me up and it said on the tail I think this train is not going beyond Shepherd's Bush <laughs> and I thought oh lord so I thought what should I do and it just sat there for a long time so I got my map out and saw how I could get here because I'd have to get the district line down and then get the Piccadilly line. And I thought, anyway, so I sat and sat and I thought, I'll get off the train. I've got to do something. Because uh, the other thing was to get to Shepherd's Bush and get a taxi. And I thought, well, if I could do it a bit cheaper, I will. But anyway, <laughs> so I got off the train and I started to walk towards the district line. And I just have a sense, get back on the train. So I got back on the train. And then it came again, this train is terminating at Shepherd's Bush. So I thought, okay, so I've got some bit more time to think. And before he left, he said, this train is going on to South Ryslip, uh, West Ryslip. So I thought, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. So I'll stay on the train. Anyway, I'm here. It took me just over four hours. But um, praise the Lord. I would spend four hours coming to see you. And I think as I've shared what I want to share with you, you'll know why. <coughs> Steve, when he served as communion, he was very right in what he said in that we become born again because we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We put our faith in the fact that he died, was buried, and rose again. And if we believe that, as we put our faith in that, God grants us to us righteousness, as if we'd never sinned. Through faith in Jesus Christ, he gives us the gift of righteousness. And so we then carry on to live as Christians. We don't know initially what we get when we first become saved, because we don't know. We have to learn and understand what we've got. But we get more than just eternal life. We get more than just the gift of righteousness. True, our sins are forgiven. All those that we ever committed, that we will commit, they're all forgiven. Our destiny is secure. It's fixed. If you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will go to heaven. You will live with him eternally. I don't believe you can ever lose your salvation. I don't believe that for one minute. I believe you're secure and fixed in him. Peter says we receive everything we need for life and godliness in Christ. And we might not fully understand what we have received, but it isn't as though we've got to ask God for things and he gives them to us. He says, I've given you everything you need. It's in there. Because Christ came into you Everything that Christ is and has, 
is yours. We have to sometimes exercise faith to lay hold of that thing of which he has presented us with. And there's another little wonderful thing, and this, this list could go on and on, but I just wanted to mention those couple, and then the fact that we've become children of God. We've become his children. We're part of his family. Now, you'd have to sit and think for a while what that means. So now I've got you in front of me for a little while, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what that means. It's a big, it's a big deal what family you're a part of. It's a big deal. You might have been born into a very wonderful, loving, glorious family that cared for you and looked after you and gave you the very best that they could. And you say, yeah, I have good family, good parents, good upbringing. Or unfortunately, you might have been born into a family that was dysfunctional. Maybe no father there anymore, struggling uh, struggling to just survive from day to day. Those of you who have enjoyed a good family, you're truly blessed of God. But now we are children of God. And if there's anyone who knows how to look after us in a family, it's God the Father. It says in Ephesians 2 and 19, it says, Consequently, Ephesians 2 and 19. Consequently, he says, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, a member of God's household. We are members of the family of God. Uh, I had a good family. I had a loving mother and father. They were born again, and they loved us. They loved, we were three boys, they loved us. And I tried to be a good father. Sometimes you have to exercise discipline, I know that. But you care and love your children. I had a good example. Christ was ruling in my heart, and so we do the best we can do. But we look back and thinking, yeah, I didn't do such a bad job. And it's of course when they're grown up and they tell you whether you did a bad job or a good job, isn't it? They're sometimes a bit funny in their attitudes. Um, but you'll know. It uses the word consequently, we're no longer foreigners and aliens. Oh, what does that mean to be a foreigner and an alien? I've never been. Well, I've been a foreigner when I've gone to a foreign country. A foreigner and an alien has no status. We have many foreign people come to our country. They have status in their own country, but when they come here, they have no status. Maybe they have no passport. Uh, they, they're not part of us. And they like being in Britain, so they want to be part of this family. They don't want to be considered as aliens or foreigners anymore. When you become a Christian, can I say your status drastically changes? 
from being a foreigner and an alien to God to becoming one of his children as a really gigantic step. Now this God has taken parental responsibility of you for eternity. Oh, that's wonderful, isn't it? Oh, and you can mess up and you can upset him but he loves you with a love that you could never understand. He's a fantastic father. We've been brought into a family. This is a family this morning. You know what I mean. Um, if you've got brothers and sisters, your relationship with them is different from anyone else, isn't it? I mean, you might not see them for months, even years. As you sit down with them, it's fine. You know, you just, you just click. You just feel part of something. And I've realised, as a Christian, because we've stepped into a family of which God is our father, he's all of our fathers, then you become my sister or brother in Christ. And sometimes we think, oh, I met a Christian and we, we started talking and it was so good because we were sort of on the same wavelength. No, it was more than that. There was a sense that you were brothers and sister or sister and sister. You didn't have to say much, you just appreciated. And sometimes I've even seen some people messing with me and I say to death, I'm sure they're Christians. Even if they haven't said anything, you go, I'm sure they're Christians. And why? Because we're in the same family, you see. We're members of the same family. It's not a theological concept. It's a physical reality. And sometimes some of your brothers and sisters in the church are a bit funny, aren't they? You know what I mean? They are a bit funny. But because they're your brothers and your sisters, you still have a love for them. If you're not a Christian this morning, you won't know what I'm talking about. That's not a good deal, is it? You won't know what I'm talking about. But if you are a Christian, you know exactly what I'm saying. There's other relationships in this family, you know. There's the relationship of a father and his children. Christianity isn't about a set of beliefs and doctrines. There are beliefs, there are doctrines. But it isn't fundamentally about believing the right thing or knowing the right thing. It's about being in relationship with God, which is wonderful. Because you might not know any Christianity, any doctrine. You might be starved of doctrine, starved of, of discovering, but you know something of the love of God. It is transmitted to you by the power of the Holy Spirit that when you got born again, entered into you. He conveys truth in the inner man that we know we have a father and we're in relationship with him. It says in Ephesians 2.18, the verse before the one I read before, Ephesians 2.19, it says this, Ephesians 2.18, 
For through him, that is Christ, we both, that's, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, have access to the Father by the one Spirit. Jew, before Christ, converted Gentiles who became Christians after Christ were of the same family. A Jew now will not become a child of God because he is a Jew. He has to be converted. He has to have faith in Jesus Christ to be born again. And so he takes the two species of being, the Jew and the Gentile, and he makes them one. And we're followers of Christ. We're Christians. We've become Christians. So, you have three fathers. You go, hang on a minute. I have one, now I've got two, now I've got three. We all have, we might not have known our biological father, but we all have a biological father. You might have had a stepfather, someone who stepped in and took the place of your biological father for whatever reason. So we have all have a biological father. We have a spiritual father. If we have accepted Christ as our saviour, we have become children of God, like I've explained. But there's another type of father that we find in the family of God. Now, if you become a Christian, you become a brother and a sister with every other Christian in the world. Apparently there's over two billion Christians now in the world, so you have two billion spiritual brothers and sisters at least. But there's a sense that God takes these billions of people and he puts them in families. We call it the local church. And so the people around you today are special brothers and sisters because they're the ones that you share your life with. They're the ones that you help. They're the ones that you support. They're the ones that you rub shoulders with. They're the ones who sometimes upset you but because that's your brother and sister, you, you're gonna deal with the issue and you're going to come back again because it's your brother or your sister. But also within the fellowship, we have fathers. Um, so to you, I'm a brother and a sister. But I'm also a father. Now, I don't think that's arrogant to say that. Paul called himself a father to the church of Corinth. And the reason he called himself that, because he was responsible for the founding of the church. He established the church. Now, it doesn't only take the founding or establishing of a church to be considered a father. If you have journeyed with God for many years and you're compassionate and you love the body of Christ, there could be a number of fathers who take tremendous care for the church. This is what he says. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 now and 14. He says, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you. So he's been a father. The Corinthian church was a little bit naughty in quite a number of ways. So whether he told them face to face or wrote letters to them, he sometimes had to tell them off. 
He says, I'm not saying these things to shame and embarrass you, because a good father wouldn't do that. Have you seen parents shame and embarrass their children? Do you feel for the kids? I do. It's not necessary, is it? I mean, even though the kids play up in public, take them somewhere quiet and deal with it. Because you bring shame upon your children otherwise. And that's not a good thing. That sows seeds of resentment and bitterness. And they don't need to do that. So Paul says, I'm not writing to shame you, although I'm pointing out what's wrong. I'm writing to warn you. Because you're going to get yourself in hot water. And it's you change in your ways. And now he says this, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ. Have you read this verse before and thought, who on earth are these 10,000 guardians? The only people they can be are your brothers and sisters. The church wasn't that big in those days. It may be about 100,000 people big when this was written. So to talk about 10,000 guardians, I was talking about other Christians. So this says that I am your guardian. I am here to watch over you, to make sure that no harm comes to you, to protect you, to guard you. And you are here to guard one another and to guard me. If you see that I'm going into a perilous place, a guardian would say, Philip, you're making a big mistake here. You shouldn't do this. To put your hands in your pockets and say, well, you'll find out soon enough. It's not good enough. It's not good enough. And because we're ever so polite in this country and we draw back from guarding one another. So perhaps we should be better guardians of each other. Speaking the truth in love is a wonderful thing. Speaking the truth because we want to score something over someone or be spiteful to them, is no good at all. Better perhaps point the error out to their friend and let their friend tell them where they're making a mistake. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, he says, you don't have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. So you are. You might have three fathers. You've all got a biological one, whether you know him or not. If you're born again, you have a spiritual one. And if you're part of this church, you've got one that is in the gospel. You might not have known that. But I think I'm your father. Uh, I'm not only a guardian and your brother in Christ, but I also believe I have another responsibility as a founder and someone elderly amongst you. See, Paul was God's chosen vessel to plant the church in Corinth. And he was very careful that he wouldn't go to other places where other men and women had planted churches and exercised authority. He says, I won't do that. I won't do that. I can only exercise authority where I have authority, not just any old where, willy-nilly. I can't walk into another church and say, I believe myself to be a father amongst you, 
Say on your bike. You might be my brother in Christ, but you're definitely not our father. But I can say that here. Now, if you don't understand that or you don't like that, well, you just have to go home and read about it. But that's how I see it anyway. And whether you don't see it, it doesn't matter. It's a benefit if you see it, because I see it. That's why, yes, I would travel for one and a half hours. I would to come here because that's what fathers do. If I was at Ireland, I would have cancelled. I said, I'm not coming. I'm not going to get out at half past five on Sunday morning just to go and see a bunch of people over in Paraguay. You must be joking. (laughs) (laughs) But that thought thought never, ever came near my mind. And it never came near Daphne's either. When I came 13 months ago, I looked it up. I actually listened to the message again. They're good, those messages. They go back a long way, don't they? I came to you on December the 2nd, uh, 2018. That's a long time ago. Now, if I say, do you remember what I preached that Sunday? I know that's not a fair question. But if I remind you of what I preached, I think some of you will remember. Love is patient. No, it was before that one. But I have preached a love being patient. I preached a sermon called Wake Up Jesus. Wake Up Jesus. Our church was going through fairly tempestuous times. I shared how Jesus was in the boat. And he was in the back of the boat. You remember now? Yes. And he was sleeping in the boat. And I said, what you need to do as a church is wake up Jesus. Just wake him up. Now, I brought that message as a father. Not as a theologian. I brought it as a father. Because I think God spoke to me. What I said, and I'll just recap the message very quickly life is about feasting and fasting I said sometimes we're really enjoying it and it's all going well and we're thinking this is fantastic if it can only stay like this forever this would be great but you know that life isn't like that it plummets into a fast only to go up again into a feast we look at several characters We looked at Job, Nebuchadnezzar, Joseph, Paul. There could have been scores more, but time doesn't permit. Their lives were fantastic and then horrible to be made fantastic again. And that's that's life. And the idea is, when it goes from the fantastic to the horrible, you don't start moaning. The idea is you remember the fantastic and you start praising God, believing that God will take you out and bring you back on to what we call a mountaintop experience again. Out of the valley of the shadow of death into a better place. I reminded you that what we were going through at the time as a church, we were struggling to stay together as a family. About a third of the membership had left the church for whatever reason. A third of our family had left. 
Now, listen, it's a serious thing to leave church. It's not, a church isn't a building that you go to to sing some songs and hear a message. No, no, no. Church is family. It's family. And sometimes you have to go. I understand that. I've moved on three or four times in my Christian life. But I tell you, when you go, it should be the hardest thing for you to do. Even if there's problems in the church, it should be a thing that you really are sure that God is saying, I'm going to move you on, because it's time to move on. So we have lost about a third of our membership. The, the leadership or the momentum of moving forward had stagnated. One needs leadership to move forward. If there is trouble in the leadership or you lose leadership, the momentum slows down. You go, that's obvious. You take the captain out of something and unless you've got then someone else to captain it or lead it, it's going to falter a bit. And if you lose people, you lose money, and therefore the ministries that you once did, they fall away as well. And we were probably in those 13 months as a family, as a church, in that situation, lost a lot of our members. The leadership was faltering somewhat, and the ministries, many of them had dried up or finished because there was no resources, either in people or money. We were sailing in a storm. Sailing in a storm. And I believe God said that I was to say to you, don't panic, don't rush to get a bucket and throw water over the side. Talk to Jesus. Talk to Jesus. And you must have, because you do pray in this church, I know. We're no longer losing people. Now, people will always come and go. That's the nature of church, especially in London. People are on the move all the time. But people exiting the church has probably stopped. You are who you are, and now from here, we build. And we see people come and join themselves to this family. You now have forward movement because I think God has raised up a pastor for you that's clear for you to see. Yes? So that's it. You need that. So you have clear leadership. You say, right, we can take control now. We can start moving forward again. Because you have that ministry start to pick up. People feel confident. They want to get going again. And the leadership starts to generate the ministries again. When I spoke to you those 13 months ago, this church was in debt to £19,000. That's a big lump of money, isn't it? And in that year that's gone through, we've gone through now, we just owe £5,000. Praise God, yes? Praise God. And the 5000 that we owe is money that's been lent to us by members of this family, and they're not pushing us for the money back. Their money will be paid back because it was given on a loan. 
but we're under no pressure to pay anybody anything, which is a good thing. We should owe nobody anything except the continuing debt of love. So praise God for that, and I'm sure that we'll be uh, paying off that £5,000 shortly. So, I want to talk about our future. Dad wants to talk about our future. <laughs> okay. Where are we going, church? What's the next step? What is expected of us? Where are we going? Well, we have a decision to make. Because we're all in the family, we all make the decision. Did you have conferences in your family? We call them conferences. We get them, everyone together, you know, you get the boys together, and the wife is five of us sitting around, and the dog, if the dog was there. And we say, we need to discuss this family. We need to talk about this, because you're all big enough now to have a part to play and to say how you feel about something. Major things. And so it's a bit like that here. We've got some decisions to make. Now, I believe that God has raised Paul up to be the pastor of this church. Yes. Okay, now, when God instructed me, I believe he did, to move, we left an extended leadership of 11 people. And somebody might have said, well, that isn't going to work. Well, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work, okay? Uh, scripturally, leadership is team. It's not a single individual. It's a team of people who have been gifted and graced by God. Apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists, teachers. The picture of the priest over the church is an Old Testament concept. It is nowhere found in the New Testament at all. But God has raised up Paul and with his dear wife Florence next to him. From the 11 that were left to be, I believe, the pastor of this church. Now, in June of this year, Paul has been studying at I call it London Bible College, but it's not that, is it? We used to be called that for years. London Theological... London School of Theology. London School of Theology, that's it. He's been there for three years studying. And in June, he... Um, what's the word? He graduated. Thank you very much. Yeah. And so we have to make a decision whether we want Paul to come on and be paid as a full-time pastor because for the last two years he's generously given of his time without any remuneration at all. So he served his apprenticeship in some ways. He's been faithful. No, he, I know what he's feeling like now. He wants to just say, oh, shut up, Philip. Let me, let me, but of course you have to go through this stuff sometimes. So in finishing his studies, we have to make a decision whether you're going to see him released into full-time ministry, or if not, he has to go back to secular employment. Now, college has enabled him to have a lot of free time, and that's a good thing. And also there was money involved, possibly, you know, the, the system that a country has to support people who are studying. That all finishes. So we have to make a decision together as a church whether we want Paul released into full-time Christian ministry. He's been doing full-time Christian ministry, but we want him to be supported financially so we don't lose him back to secular employment. 
So you have to make the decision amongst yourself. Do we want this? Yes. Or not? Makes the rest of the sermon a bit easier. I don't think it'd be any other way. I want to tell you something about our short 15 years of history, because that's how long it is. Hope did not exist prior to 2005. But we have seen the tremendous provision of God in those 15 years. When we first came here in 2007, I think it was, the building wasn't even this size at all. The cafe did not exist. That was the front door, and it finished there. It was relatively small. And yet the trustees, the leaders at the time, thought it has potential. We could use it as a place of ministry. It was run down. It not got a terrible state. Some of you might remember seeing it, what it was like. But to build the cafe extension and to renovate just this in its first stage was going to cost us £125,000. And so we put it to the congregation. They said yes. And within one year, we had rebuilt the building, refurbished it, cost £125,000, and we never borrowed a penny from the bank at all. At all. And we still had our own budget to run the whole of the ministry, and that too was £125,000. So in one year, it went from £125,000 to £250,000, and then back to 125,000. Provision was made. Now, where did the money come from? When Peter needed the money, Jesus said, it's in the fish's mouth. Because he opened the mouth and found the money. It's in the fish's mouth. It's in your mouth. You have the money. Or you have the means by which God can channel money through you to do the work of the ministry. Now, you might not have any money, but what you can have is faith that God will provide what you need. The fact that we haven't got the money to do it is only a blessing. If we had the money to do everything we wanted to do, we would never need any faith. We could just go off and do what we like, just buy what we like, spend what we like, do what we like. If we had loads and loads of money in the church, we wouldn't even be loving this message. We'd just say, Paul, come on, staff, and we'll pay you. And that's the end of it. But because perhaps we haven't got the money, it focuses us back on God. To say, Lord, I haven't got what Philip's asking me for, but I'm going to look to you and exercise my faith and believe that you will open up channels by which the money becomes available. About four years later after we did that, we decided that we would break through from the cafe, which was an extension in the first project, into this room. It cost £10,000. The cafe paid for that on its own, without taking any resources from the church at all. So God did it again. Then when we decided it would be wonderful if we could create this space that you see now. That was in 2017. This was going to cost another £130,000. So, 
in the brief 15 years that we've been here, I made that £265,000 that we've invested simply in the fabric of God's house. Now, you wouldn't want to know how many thousands more has been invested by God's people into foreign missions. One year, £50,000 alone was invested by its members in going abroad on foreign missions. £50,000. One year, and we went on three missions. To go on a mission cost about £1,000. So if you take ten people on three missions, you see how much it is. So God has been faithful. In each case, we never had the money. No one ever came and said, I can write a cheque for that film. They might have been able to, but they never. And so it didn't matter. And I don't want them to. We have to be in this together, you see. We're family. It's not right that one person, it's not wrong, but it's better if we all take it on board and take on the responsibility and own it and say, yes, this is what I want. Our income at present is something like £50,000 a year. Now you might say, oh, that's a lot of money. Well, it might be relative to if you're on a pension, it's a lot of money, I mean. But for a church of this size, in the most, one of the most expensive cities of the world to live, and knowing the cost of everything, it's not a vast amount of money. If we want to employ someone, we're talking a minimum of £30,000 in London, really. And then by the time you pay for some pension and uh, national insurance contribution, it's probably £40,000 to employ someone. So we've got to double our income from 50000 to 100000 That's a mighty big step. Praise God. God knows how big a step we need to take, you see. He knew in 2007, he knew in 2012, and he knew in 2017 what a giant step it was for us. But what we have to do is first believe. We have to believe first that it's the will of God to release Paul into full-time supported Christian ministry. You have to believe that. If you don't believe it, if you don't believe that to be true, you will never exercise faith to generate the funds for it to happen. So you must believe it to be true. That's up to you. I can't tell you what to believe or not to believe. That's your choice. Having believed it, you then have to exercise faith. Because all things are possible to them that believe. It has to go beyond what is possible. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. So we're going to believe God that our income, by the time Paul goes full time, will be £100,000 a year. That's what I like to hear. That's it. That's it. Can I suggest some simple steps to you? Practical steps. 
Because nearly all faith things require practical steps. God came to Abraham, Sarah, and said, you're going to have a baby. Did they just wait, or did they do something practical? You understand what I'm driving at, don't you? They did something, didn't they? When Noah, God said, I want you to build an ark to save the animals, he had to build something, didn't he? He had to get up in the morning and do something about it. So there are some practical things that we can do. You might be doing these things already. I've said first you must believe this is what God wants. See, to believe in something that God doesn't want, you can never have godly faith for it. It doesn't work. You can have human faith to believe in something, but for faith to be biblical and spiritual, God must speak. And then you put faith in what God has said, and because God has said it, your faith will cause it or help it to come to pass. Some practical things then. If you, don't, if you don't give regularly to this ministry, either weekly or monthly, depending on when you receive your salary, make a decision to do that. Paul will want his salary every month. We have to pay the bills every month. And Paul told us in scripture, he said at the beginning of every week, set aside a sum of money. Don't wait till I come and then make an appeal. So what I'm saying to you is scriptural. Set aside an amount of money that you have decided in your heart is the right amount to give to the work of the ministry here. And make it regular. A good way of making it regular is to pay it by direct debt. Therefore, you're never caught short of not having the money and you never make a decision, I'm not going to do this. Having committed it and given it and told the bank to do it, forget about it and cause your budget now to be different. And I suggest to you that God gets the first of your giving. Even prior to the tax man, you have to pay your taxes, I get that. But there's someone higher than the tax man, and it must be God. So from the money that you receive, say, God, I'm giving this to you. I know the tax man's going to take this, but this first I give to you. It is called first fruit principle. How much should you give? I'm going to pick up on what Steve said. Steve said, when you put something in the offering, your heart and your love should be in that offering. It shouldn't be like, I don't, I don't really want to. Your heart should be in it. So give what you have a heart to give. So how much is that? God never told people how much to give. He gave them percentages. Isn't that interesting? He didn't say you should give a hundred pound. He said you should give a percentage. I've realised that by giving percentages, we all give the same. Now we all know Linda's really wealthy. <laughs> That's why she works so hard all her life. Now, whatever, whatever income Linda has, God says to her, Linda, I'd like you to give ten percent or, or a figure, just ten percent. Now, Philip, we know that you're a real pauper. We want you to give 
No, she might give 100, and I might give 10. She might give 10, and I might give 1. In the sight of God, we both give them the same. Because it isn't how much, it is on a percentage basis. Now, in the Old Testament, God was clear about how what percentage they have to give. 10% for this, 10% for that, 10% for the other. When we move into the New Testament, I personally, although you might be different, I don't believe on the tithe principle that somehow if we don't give God a tenth of our income, some awful thing will happen to us. I don't believe that to be true because we've got a better covenant and we've got a better work of the Spirit within us. God is now living in us and he says, Philip, I want you to grow in your love that your love dictates how much you give. Your love for me dictates how much you give. Not your bank balance, obviously you can't give more than what you've got, but your love for me dictates it. Now, if we don't love the Lord much, we won't give much. I get that. I understand that 100%. I remember when I didn't love the Lord much. I didn't give him anything. You didn't know what it is Actually, I always did because I was born in a Christian home and told me I was thinking so I gave something. But it, it's about how much we love him. So, you say, well, suggest a figure to me. Well, I will, but this isn't legalistic. About 10% of your income. 10% of your gross income. You give it to the church. I've worked out over the years, that if people do that, with a church this size, you can easily support Paul. Easily. If we don't, then we won't. We have to pay the rent, we have to pay the bills, we don't have to employ Paul. So any money that we do have will go on what we have to do, and Paul might get the leftovers. That's not good. That's not honouring the one that God has raised up amongst us. So I would encourage you to go home. If it's what you believe, then I would like you to start thinking about, right, I need to give regularly, not as and when, regularly, and I need to give a percentage. Not an amount, a percentage. Because that's how the Bible asks us to think about giving, in percentages. See, even if you give 10% of the work of the ministry, you've still got 90% in your pocket. That's not bad, deal, is it? I'm not stealing it off you, am I? It's a good, a good percentage. As you give, we might find and discover that the giving doesn't quite rise to what we want. It might not. But what I've discovered is that God can always make up the difference. Remember that guy that came to him and he said, can you do something for my son? He's in a terrible state. He said, just believe. Just believe and your son will get well. And he says, I do believe, but I don't believe much. He says, I'm glad what you believe, what you do. He says, well, he technically says, I think, I'll make up the difference. I'll make up the difference. You do what you can do, and God says, I'll see the sincerity of your heart 
to, to, to come towards me and do what you can do, and I will make up the difference. On that first project I told you about here, where we needed £125,000, we had got so far, and um, there was insufficient to finish things off. And I used to run a Bible school here on a Wednesday afternoon. And there were mostly people from outside of the church that used to come. And there was a, a Chinese lady that used to come every week. And she said, one week, she said, I want to talk to you. She said, I come every week. And you never finish off the work that you started. Well, I said, there's a good reason for that. The money is not available to do it, so we won't do it. That woman, who only visited our church once, gave £25,000 to the completion of the work of this church. Now, the people of this church didn't even know who this woman was. Unless you came to the Bible study, you wouldn't have known her. She visited our church once. She was attending another church. And yet she had the means, the wherewithal, making a big, a big donation. So I want to encourage you in that. We have lots of stories, even in our 15 years, of God making abundant provision where we've dared to step out and dared to believe him and dared to say, Lord, I have nothing, but I'm prepared to be a channel. Lord, I'm believing you to give this so I can give that. That's how it works. That's it, Dad's finished his talk. <laughs> I'll put it before you. I want you to prayerfully consider the message and the things that I've said. And I, I, what do I expect to happen? I'm expecting to see the income in this church rising. That's it. And then when we have to make that decision for Paul in two or three months' time, as trustees together, we'll say, Paul, it looks good. It looks good to us and the Holy Spirit. Let's go for it. Amen. Paul's going to have to step out. We're going to have to step out. We're going to have to pull together. And I think we honour the servant of God. God has honoured honored you, not us, and honoured our family. And he wants to bless us with a full-time minister who can harness and, and move us forward in a very profound and a wonderful way. Amen. 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 Let me pray with you then and we finish this morning. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this precious family. It's a family, Lord. A family of brothers and sisters that acknowledge that you are our Father and you care for us. And Father, you've heard everything that has been said this morning. You've seen into all of our hearts. You understand. Uh, all of our situations financially and the responsibilities we have and what we can do and can't do, you know the measure of faith that's in our hearts. Lord, pour your grace into our lives. Pour your grace into our lives so we can exercise greater faith in this area of finances. We can have the spirit of generosity to give and to believe and would see this church flourish to rise up again to mountaintop experiences in you because of your goodness to us and the work of your spirit in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, Amen. Lord. Amen. Amen.